almost uh, 25 years ago in India, I was driving home from my work, and I chanced upon a young man doing street preaching. It is not very uncommon in India, but this boy was around 17 years old, and he was holding a Bible, and he was testifying how he found Christ and some of the consequences of, his, of that. And one thing that stuck out, and the, the reason I stood there and listened to the whole story was his name. His name was Subramanian, which is the name of a very popular Hindu god. And if you are from India, you can immediately recognize the caste, the layer, the racialized layer in the society. And I was right, because this young boy was the only son of a Hindu priest and if you know the caste system in India, the priestly class is the Brahmins, which is the highest caste. And uh, so somebody coming to faith in Christ from that kind of uh, structure is very special. Then the boy was telling the testimony of how he was kicked out of his house. His parents disowned him. His tribe disowned him. But then he clung to this one Bible, and he was actually sleeping in a public place. I believe it was in a school uh, yard, uh, yard or something. Then a pastor saw him and took him in, uh, by his side, and then he, he got baptized and all that. Now, fast forward 25 years. Exactly three weeks ago, when we started the series, True Story, I saw a man walking by, and I saw, I knew that he's from India. And he introduced him to myself as the new post-doc scholar at Fuller, which means he has a PhD and then he's doing further studies and he, he's working on a book. And he said his name was Subramanyam. So this young boy I saw 25 years ago, I always wondered what happened to him, but now, he is the father of two children, he has a beautiful wife, and he has three bachelor degrees and two master's degrees and one PhD. <laughs> and the man who was groomed to be the next priest is a pastor and also a professor in a very reputed seminary in India. It's my privilege to talk to him in front of you, just a snippet of his story. Dr. Subramanian, would you mind come up, coming up? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's that microphone. Yes, okay. I'm going to call you Subi, okay? Because <laughs> Subramanyam is a mouthful for, for our people. So. Thank you. <laughs> Subi, to put things in perspective, right? Like, you know, you, your parents are still hostile, and I believe your dad passed away. Yes. And uh, they didn't even allow you to attend the funeral. No. And uh, your mother w still won't talk to you. Yeah. Um, now... Again, I'm, I live in America. Here, somebody posts something in Facebook questioning my faith. I feel oppressed. I feel persecuted. 
Somebody sent a mean tweet, I, I just got riled up, right? It's, it's all important, but just to put things in perspective, why would you choose something like this? What found you so attractive about Christianity as a 17-year-old boy to leave everything you have, not just your parents, not just your family, your inheritance, and, and if you're from India and being born as a Brahmin is a big deal. People don't get it, right? Like, you know, what, what, what did you find so attractive about Christianity? Well, uh, till the age of 16, I never heard of Christ or Christianity because from the age of 8 onwards, I was taken to the Hindu temples and daily pujas, what we call the worshipping different Hindu gods and goddesses in the form of different idols. And myself belonged to a traditional conservative joint family setup. And I had the sacred court and my costume was different. There used to be a sandal paste and those things, and I was doing that. But as I was growing, we had a lot of family struggles and issues and other things. And I was, every day I was praying to these idols. But they had eyes they were not seeing. They had mm. ears they were not listening. Mm. They had mouth they were not speaking. This is, I did not learn from the psalm, but from my experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I heard gospel at the age of 16, very fresh way from a college friend in, 90, in the year 1993. Then uh, I got a Gideon's uh, red colored small New Testament in my mother tongue in Malayalam. And I was, I could uh, read from Matthew to Revelation four times in that year. 93, 94. Hmm. Then I thought it is a book of Christians and Jesus is a God of Christians. Like we had so many Hindu scriptures, Vedas and Gita, Itihasas and other things. I thought New Testament is like a religious book of Christians and Christ like a God of Christians. But when I read that, I understood something different. That I was not reading the Bible, but Bible was reading to me, mm. reading mm. my life, mm. and speaking, and uh, it comforted me. Wow. Yeah. And uh, those days, morning and evening, I used to go to the temple, and during lunchtime, noontime in the college, I used to listen Bible. Mm. It means like morning and evening, you are like a Hindu, and in the noontime, you are like a Christian. Mm. <laughs> then slowly, God's Spirit spoke to me, Bible comforted me. Then I realized in the book of Romans chapter 1, mm. verses 18 to 25, there it, Paul talks about the wrath of God, and Paul is telling the incorruptible image of God, man made into destructible images in the form of man, reptiles, bird, and other things. And this word, even when I was doing pujas in the temple, in the Sri Govind, in the inside, Sancto Sanctum, mm. even there I could resonate those verses in the Bible. Mm. What you are doing, this idols is wrong. Thou shalt not make any image, any graven image or idol. God does not exist in that. God is spirit. God is truth. God likes to live inside your heart. And that message came to me. And I realized the love of Jesus. Jesus was speaking to me, comforting me. I realized as a living presence. Then, when I realized the love of Jesus... I was not able to go back and worship mm. those idols. Mm. 
ിയോളജിസഫി Uh, I don't want to give you the full dissertation but it is essentially uh, exploring the Christ experience in the writings of Mahatma Gandhi and Swami Vivekananda who is supposed to be a very very famous Hindu scholar who actually brought Hinduism to uh, America in 1895 the Chicago World Conference I guess Swami Vivekananda brought Hinduism to uh, officially to America um, so you talked about the Christ experience in the writings of Gandhi and Swami Vivekananda what does that mean for the western audience like you know do w- they had some understanding of Jesus is that what it is yes yeah. yes yeah and i made a study of uh, their christ experience these two people are indian philosophers swami vivekananda who is considered as a hindu missionary and where hinduism became active in us when he spoke in 1893 parliament of religions way back in september 1893 and uh, these two people are highly philosophers and neo vedantist and they are uh hindus and hindu leaders and uh, vivekananda and Bo- gandhi both were they believed in advaita philosophy advaita philosophy believed that uh, the human self and the universal self god in sanskrit it is called atman and brahman both are non different both mm-hmm. are same mm-hmm. and uh, so they looked at christ they had great admiration for christ mm-hmm. but they did not accept the christian version the christian doctrinal teachings or the biblical perspective of christ they looked christ from the lenses of advaita mm-hmm. then vivekananda said christ is a yogi christ is a realized soul christ is a hindu bhakta mm-hmm. and not as a savior and lord mm-hmm. and uh, he admired jesus teaching in the sermon on the mount those who are pure in heart they will shall see god and uh, he took some of the mystical sayings in the johannine gospel mm. and so on but he did not accept mm. because as an advaitin he failed to see the ransom work as we sung today mm. the redeeming work of jesus on the cross mm. he was not able to accept he believed in the spiritual nature of man mm. so he was not able to accept man as a sinner he said it is sin to call a man sinner yeah so vivekananda was like that Yeah. Then coming to Gandhi, Gandhi as the father of nation and non-violent freedom struggle against the British colonialism, he understood Christ as a satyagrahi, as a soul force who is fighting against injustices, against Roman emperors, against Sadducees and Pharisees and of his time. Then he understood Jesus as a moral ethical teacher and he admired a lot about Sermon on the Mount. and he considered jesus death on the cross as an example of self sacrifice mm. so they were not admitting christ as a savior and lord as the bible says mm. because uh, they were looking christ entirely from a hindu advaitic perspective mm. Mm. so i made a study on that and i made a critical response to that wow okay um uh, just for your information subi will be here for 6 months and he is leaving only the 30th of june right mm. 
So uh, up until that time, he's the um, guest of Fuller. Uh, I hope to hear from him more and uh, through the Bible classes. And if anybody wants to talk to Subi and hear more about his story, I have his number. I'll, I'll get it to you. Uh, and this is a great, you know, let's say a prayer uh, for Subi right now, if you don't mind. Father God, we thank you for this incredible stories. The very first week we started the True Story series, this life story I heard 25 years ago walked into this altar. And we, we don't believe it's a coincidence. And we pray that the presence of many, many stories like this we haven't heard. And I know there are similar stories in this pew. There are similar stories in global mission field. And we thank you for allowing Lake Avenue Church, Lake Avenue Church for the last 125 years to be part of this interwoven with the many stories in the world. And we thank you for Subi, his wife Tessie, and the children, Derek and Dasha, if I'm right, right? You know, thank you for their children, and thank you for their ministry back home, and pray that while he is here, we will be able to have more fellowship, and we will be able to encourage and edify each other. Bless us together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Subay. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know what to preach after that. <laughs> uh, would you stand with me for the reading of the word? I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 9 and then 15 to 17. Genesis chapter 2, 9 and then 15 to 17. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to tell you a story today which I believe is the oldest story ever told. I'm going to call it a tale of three trees. Like any tale, it starts long, long time ago in a land far, far away. There is this place called Garden of Eden. We don't know if Garden of Eden was a celestial entity that existed in a different dimension, or it was a terrestrial earthly entity, or maybe it's a fusion of two. We don't know, but it doesn't matter. All we know is that this garden has different trees with weird names. Now, there is confusion about, particularly that two trees are mentioned here, and these are the two trees in the middle of the garden. I have an artistic rendition of these 
two trees, at the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's an artistic rendition. We don't know how it looked like. We don't even know whether it is the actual tree or not, depending on your theological spectrum. If you are an extreme conservative spectrum, you believe it was a literal tree and it is a literal fruit. And if it was more in the progressive sect, you know, if you are coming from the progressive outlook, it's all the symbolic depiction of some cosmic realities we have no clue about. It doesn't matter. Again, this is a story. Right? This, is, this is not just a sermon, this is a story. So it's okay to have that confusion. And it's always the, an elephant in the room, you know, when you talk about the Garden of Eden or the book of Genesis in particular, whether it's literal, whether it's figurative, the point really is that. But I, the only thing I can tell you is that this fruit of the tree is not something you find in Trader Joe's, for example, right? It's not like you can walk into Trader Joe and say, hey, where is the fruit of the good and the evil? <laughs> and then they will say, oh, that's aisle three next to avocados, right? Like, you know, that's not how it works. So obviously, this tree and the fruits has multiple dimensions. Even if it was a literal tree and a literal fruit, it was definitely not apple. Okay, because many people understand this was some kind of an apple or something. No, that's Isaac Newton's story. People get confused very often, <laughs> right? This true, uh, the tree and the fruit. So, but the, but the only thing I want to, I want to do, I wonder, I wonder, right? Like when I look at the story is that, the only thing I wanted to address today, why would God for, ask us not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said it is forbidden, the forbidden fruit. Because, see, if God said, you know, the, you should not eat from the tree of covetousness or, or, I don't know, idolatry or jealousy or something like that, I understand that, right? What is wrong with the knowledge of good and evil? Isn't that a good thing? I mean, if I was in the garden, I would wonder, hey, that, that's, isn't that a good thing, right? So, in order to understand this, you know, just to, only just to, just to explore this, we have to take a step back and look at it, something called the paradigm of relationship between God and human being through history. And if you know theology, you probably heard about dispensationalism and all that different dispensation. This is, I'm not talking about dispensation, but it is something very similar. Anyway, according to this, the Garden of Eden is a representation of a paradigm which we call the age of innocence. Age of innocence where God and humanity related to each other like a father and children, okay? This is a time when human beings did the will of God by their instinct. Every creation, every form of creation do the will of God by instinct, right? Sun rises in the east, Sun doesn't wonder, hey, every day I'm rising in the east. Today I'm going to do it in the west. No, it does automatically. The rooster crows in the morning. It doesn't wonder, should I crow? I'm tired of do doing this every Sunday or every day, right? <laughs> no, 
it does it by instinct. And there was a time in humanity's history where human beings did the will of God by instinct. They didn't have to think about it. They just did it naturally. Now, does that mean that we were perfect in every respect? Not necessarily. For example, since it's the paradigm of the age of innocence, and you know when you, as a father, when you relate to your children, or as a mother, it doesn't matter, I remember, I have two children, two daughters, Hannah and Emma, when they grew up. When they were toddlers, that was the age of innocence. And nothing that they did could make me upset in the sense that because they do it out of their instinct. When they see me, they come. They don't have to wear makeup. They don't have to look pretty when I come home and they come, they leap right into my lap because it didn't matter how they looked. It didn't matter how they smelled because they were my children. And quite often they did this very mischievous thing, but I don't remember any of them because I don't hold grudge against them for any of it because it was out of their innocence. And I still remember when I was a final year student in seminary, my older daughter Hannah, she was probably a year old or a year and a half old, you know, she woke up from her sleep and she had a glass of apple juice and she leapt right into my lap and I was at my laptop and was all over the key, keyboard, and it just, the laptop crashed completely, all my essays, everything gone, and this is back almost 20 years ago, it was not retrievable at that time, the technology, but I don't remember that, I don't hold anything, anything against her, right? <laughs> what I'm saying is, <laughs> what I'm saying is, <laughs> she did that out of her instinct, of her love for me. In that love, whatever she does is perfectly calibrated in my relationship with her. Because, or that, that relationship is what calibrates that instinct. It doesn't matter whether you do the right thing or the wrong thing. As long as you have an innocent relationship with your father, whatever you do is perfect in the eyes of the father. Right? Now, that's what they call the age of innocence. But then what happened? We ate the fruit, the forbidden fruit. The first thing that happened after we ate the, when I say we, because I put myself in that Garden of Eden, because we were all there, metaphorically speaking, in Adam and Eve, right? It was not just the story of two people. It's the story of humanity. We were all there in a sense, right? So we ate the forbidden, forbidden fruit, right? And what was the first thing that happened when we ate it? Did we die? Because that's what God said. We will die, right? But this is what happened. Genesis chapter 3, 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now that's very strange. <laughs> they were naked before, right? They were naked before. But at that moment they ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, there was an awareness of, uh, of their nakedness. Now if you read Genesis chapter 2.25, this is the original state. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now that's interesting. They were both naked, but they were not ashamed. This is a little uh, R-rated sermon, so I know there are little kids in the room. <laughs> they should be in the nursery. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, so, so in that paradigm of innocence, even though they were naked, they were not ashamed. That's like the little children, right? The little children walk around the house and they are naked. It doesn't matter because they don't feel the shame, right? But then we slowly transition to this new paradigm of relationship where we have this sudden awareness of our nakedness. And that created a distance between you and God or we and God and where we don't do the will of God by instinct anymore. We want to know what is good and evil before we do it, right? Isn't that as, you know, the question I get as a pastor very often, Pastor Matthew, I want to know the will of God. Tell me, do a series on knowing the will of God. Nobody has ever asked me to do a series on doing the will of God. They all want to know the will of God. Then they will decide whether they want to do it or not, right? No, seriously, seriously. You read books about knowing the will of God, sermons about knowing the will of God, never about doing the will of God. Because now humanity has entered into a new paradigm of relationship where we will do it only if we know what is good and what is bad or evil, right? Now this is again like my children. I'm sorry to, to bring them into the sermon. Or it's us, all of us, right? When the children, when, when my daughters grew up and they're teenagers, now they are not toddlers anymore. Now they are teenagers. They are not that innocent anymore, right? In that paradigm, they kind of have a rule book. They know exactly what they should ask me for certain things. They know what ticks me <laughs> and what ticks me not. <laughs> and so they, they, have a, they, have a, they have a kind of a book, a law as to, okay, uh, yeah, let's not ask dad about this right now. He's not in a, the right mood. He, he, you know what I'm talking about. We, we have all been teenagers. We have all done that. Now, this is how that paradigm changed. So we call it the age of awareness in which we relate to God by a rule book which say, tells us what is good, what is bad. That is exactly what religions give you. The, you think the Bible is too much? Ask Subramaniam, how many rule books are there in Hinduism? If you stack them, you know, the Vedas and the Samhidas and uh, the Upanishads and all in this room, it will, full, it will be, this room will be full of sacred scriptures. They are all rule books. Now the paradigm changed from a master and a slave because now religion essentially enslaves humanity. And that's why, you know, if you read the epistles of Paul, it's all about the law. The law become a curse. The law become the, the law that enslaves us. The law tells us what we should do and what we should not do because we wanted it. We changed the paradigm. We wanted a different kind of relationship. That's what happens at that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil the religion, the awareness that happened. And, and that 
essentially is wreaking chaos in our world today. Because we want to know, we want to set the standard of morality, right? Back in the days in Billy Graham's America, even if you didn't go to church, people really knew Bible was the standard of right and wrong. People were willing to listen. Yeah, the Ten Commandments say so. We should be very careful about it, whether I'm a Christian or whether I'm a Jew. It doesn't matter. It was a fundamental moral standard. Then we decided that, no, religion is too oppressive, so let's go with the societal terms. The society defines what is good and evil. Then we evolved again. Our moral standard evolved. Our standard of good and evil evolved, and we said, no, society doesn't decide what is good and evil. I decide... My truth, like Oprah Winfrey and all that, my truth will be different from your truth. It doesn't matter. I will decide what is the standard of morality, what is the standard of good and evil. Now we have further evolved to the extent that there is no good and evil at all. It is a matter of perception. Who said what is good and who says what is evil? You see what's happening in the world? So this is the danger of the progression if I can call it, of humanity, right? Now, this change in paradigm made the third, the second tree, which is the tree of life, dangerous. So the reason God kicked out humanity from the Garden of Eden was not just be, not because God was angry, he was angry, but the reason he did was that he didn't want humanity to Eat from the tree of life again. I'll, I'll read that. So uh, Genesis 3, and 23. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. Do you get it? Humanity had a, has a very twisted instinct now. Our instinct got perverted. And Calvin would call it the total depravity of humanity. We have this, we have this proclivity for evil, setting our own standard. In that stage, if we continue to live forever, that is going to create big problems in the cosmos. So God knew that he cannot, we cannot eat from the tree of life and continue to live forever. We have to die and resurrect into a new paradigm or new disposition. We have to die. Because otherwise it is dangerous for us. It is dangerous for God, dangerous for the cosmos. So the death from one disposition and resurrection into another disposition or another paradigm became inevitable. Now, here you see the third tree. The third tree. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, the story of humanity is a story of our journey from one tree to the other tree. We ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
And now we want the tree of life, but God took the tree of life all the way from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. You see in the book of Revelation, the tree of life is there. In the middle of the street, on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22, 2. So God took the tree of life from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, and we are yearning for it. We want the tree of life. We want life, life abundant. So this humanity is on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, from one tree to the other tree, but this journey will be made possible only by the third tree, which comes right in the middle. It is in the New Testament. The one who hung on a tree allowed us to have this death and resurrection possible. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by hanging on a tree, by becoming a curse for us. Now, we are called into a different paradigm, a third and the most beautiful paradigm, a new relationship, a new disposition, which I call the age of divine romance. <laughs> I use the word romance because Christianity is a very romantic religion. Do you know that? No God came and called his devotees, you are my wife. <laughs> Church is essentially the bride of Christ, right? And in the book of Revelation, you see the marriage between God or Christ and his church. And Paul said, I betrothed you to a one husband, Christ, as a pure virgin. Christianity is a romantic religion. Christ introduces a new word into the equation, which is love. Love. The way of love Trumps the way of law. Now, in, 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 the, in the new third paradigm of relationship, it is between a husband and wife. Now, interestingly enough, there are only two times human beings can be naked and feel unashamed. That is one when you are children, and the second when you are in the presence of your wife or husband. These are the only two times Human beings can be naked and unashamed. Now, this is the third paradigm to which God has called us, where you can come to God naked, completely naked, or as Billy Graham would call us, just as I am. Just as naked as you are, with your bleeding heart, with your torn life, or your ripped jeans. It doesn't matter. Because you are called into the naked and unashamed relationship because the very God who was on the throne of grace came to this world naked and unashamed. Christianity has a God who is completely naked. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself. He came in the form of a servant. He became naked because 
He wanted to establish this paradigm of divine romance, which you will see only in Christianity. Brothers and sisters, we have been going through the series for the three weeks. And I want you to know that what you have is so precious because the price which is paid for it is also very, very precious. And you are brought to the foot of the third tree where God himself became a curse for us. Bare naked came because he loved you so much to invite you into that new paradigm of relationship. See, if you are still doing religion in a way, choosing the right thing instead of wrong thing, I don't know if you are still, a, still into that paradigm. See, Christianity is not about avoiding the wrong thing and choosing the right thing. That is religion. That is religion. But love, the way of love, the way of cross is something that transcends our understanding of right and wrong. Because if you, are, if you are relating to somebody based on how he does or how she does good and, uh, or bad, then you are not in love. If you are truly in love, that's what they call it, you fall in love, right? When you fall in love, you don't think about the right and the wrong. If you're still relating to God that way, you're still doing religion. I want you to rethink your Christianity now. I want you to enter into that paradigm of divine romance because for God so madly loved the world. Sorry, my own translation. And he came to this world and he gave himself for us. He became a curse for us. I'm going to say a prayer. If you haven't accepted Jesus into your life, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything like that. But I want you to take, to pause a moment and to rethink your relationship with God. Which paradigm are you? And I want you to know that you can come to God bare naked and unashamed. And you are not going to relate to God just like innocent children, not just like obedient slaves, but as a loving spouse. That is the relationship he is calling you to. So let's examine ourselves and where we are in relationship with God and let us recommit ourselves to, into his hands and into that new relationship. Let's pray. Father God, you can see us the way the world cannot. Irrespective of how how many fig leaves we use to cover our loincloths, you can still see through it. So here we are, naked and unashamed. Forgive our sins, O oh Lord, the way we have related to you and the way we have related to the people, and we pray that your blood that was shed on the third tree where you hung for the salvation of humanity to take our curse away and we come and plead for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can enter into a new relationship with you. 
Lord, we mark this day as a day of our salvation, our renewal, our recommitment to you, and not only as individual, but also as a community. Write us into your story so that we will find fulfillment and fruition of every dream that we have, which is you have placed in our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Break the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In inspiration, I turned from heaven and spoke your name into the light. Then through the darkness. Your loving kindness tore through the shadow of my soul. Your work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living Lord. Who could imagine? I could fathom such boundless grace. The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross, the cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of Kings.
Once again, uh, thank you for joining us, particularly for this series, uh, True Story, and we have new series beginning next week. But if you're part of this storytelling, and, uh, and if you find that, if you want to find that connection between your story and God's story, there are two ways. One, if, if you have already committed your life to Christ, and as Pastor Scott reminded us, it's a time for the next step in your journey, which is taking baptism. And so next week, actually, I'm giving an orientation at 11 o'clock at room number 400, I believe, Hutchin Hall. And please sign up through our website. And you don't have to take baptism. You can know what it is about. And at the end, if you decide not to take baptism, that's fine. But that orientation class happens next Sunday. And uh, also, Alpha Course, as Pastor Scott mentioned, that's where you can explore more what we were talking about, what's God's story and how that matters to you, right? And we're starting again, uh, starting next Sunday evening, so you can sign up through the website. And always, as we live, we have our prayer warriors uh, here and they, and also we have a prayer room outside, and not so many people know this, it's a small chapel if you want confidential prayer, and they are available there. It's such a big service they do and being with connecting with people. And also, talking about connecting with people, there is a connecting table right outside. Again, I urge you to be part of the community. Don't just do church. Be part of church. Be part of the story, right? So get plugged into our community. Our wonderful ushers are there to direct you in the right way. Now, a very, very important announcement. I hope I'll do justice to this. My boss just handed it over to me. So we have been doing, um, at least you must have heard about a constitutional change or bylaw change that we are talking about. I know the moment we hear things like that, we get panic. Oh, what, are, what, what, what change, right? Uh, but, you know, uh, a team of faithful people have been working on it for the last two years. Now they are slowly putting that out for your uh, feedback and your information and your suggestion and your revision, your recommendation. So this is not somebody is going to come and from this day it is going to be changed. That's not how it is. So from next week onwards, it was already circulated through our different divisions. So, you know, and we have already received some feedback. Now next week onwards, it will be coming online and uh, there will be many supporting documents. If you find a change, why the change was made, there are supporting documents available too. And also don't worry, there will be multiple congregational meetings to talk about this too. So nothing is just changing from tomorrow or something like that. So there is a process that is established where we all have our voice and we can all understand and appreciate or even recommend different ways to change it, okay? So did I do justice to that, Pastor Scott? Okay, good. <laughs> okay, so thank you again for being here. Now, as you go, May the one who hung on a tree usher you into the tree of life and may he give you life, life abundant. May he write your story. May he strengthen your spirit. May he bring your dreams to fruition all for his glory from now and forevermore. Go with God. Amen.
Thank you.